Welcome to the Speak Up Talk Radio Network, the Authors on Fire podcast. I am Pat Rulo, here today with Firebird Book Award winning author to share with you. He is John Nicholson, and his winning book is titled Parables of Chance. John is a licensed CPA who graduated with high honors from DePaul University in Chicago, and that's where he earned a Bachelor of Science degree in accounting. After graduation, he went on to become a licensed CPA and worked for 32 years in the federal government for the IRS, Customs, and Homeland Security. His roles and responsibilities included audits and investigations that dealt with drug seizures, money laundering, illegal smuggling, tax evasion, and monetary fraud. He also served as an instructor at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, and for over 18 years, John has also worked in Minnesota, Florida, and Colorado as a women's lacrosse official. To date, he has worked over 1,300 games. And recently, he and his wife became first-time grandparents when their little grandson Oliver was born, and John dedicated this book, The Parables of Chance, his debut novel, to Oliver. We have so much more to find out, and we're going to get there. So let's get going. Welcome to the network, John. Thank you, Pat. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, also an honor to be here uh, for winning that award. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I was going to say congratulations on the book win. It was, I think, last July. Last July? June. Right, it was the end of June. Well, whenever, congratulations. So why did you dedicate your book to your grandson? Well, both of them were, uh, I guess you could say, first-time adventures or first first time I became a grandparent and first time I I had a book published. And I just thought, uh, I don't know how many people have their grandfather... (laughs) dedicate a novel to him or something of that nature. But he he came to mind, uh, you know, of course, I could have dedicated to a lot of other people, but uh, it just it just felt right to dedicate it to him uh, because it was just uh, both were going to be two new adventures that, that I had entered into. No, oh, I love that. And he will love that. Can you imagine how exciting that will be as he gets older and, you know, just kind of leaving a legacy, right? Right, right. Yep. At least I hope so. I would think so, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Your book fascinated me. You know, you can tell a lot about a society by the way they treat animals. That's just kind of a fact. And your book right. highlights this. Before we get a peek into the storyline, after all you've done in your um, professions, why write a book and why would this be uh, of interest to you? Well, I, I actually was writing uh, two other novels, and this kind of moved into first place. And I was kind of drawing from all experiences in my life. And I I just always was, I guess, fascinated to look at people from all different angles. So if you look at the characters that start to come out, both the ones who do incredibly evil things and, and those who are incredibly compassionate and loyal and and kind of the good and, and bad traits of humanity. Uh, I just, as I started writing this, uh, I thought I'm going to have, I'm going to have the readers look at e- each of the characters from different angles. 
And as far as the cat, that's why everybody asked, like, why, why did you use a cat? You, you've never owned a cat. You had a dog. <laughs> uh, but the, the cat represents innocence. It, it, it can't defend itself. It's, it's expecting the owners to treat it properly, to be there when it needs it. And, and when all that disappears, uh, it, it shows. Like I said, it, it could have been uh, any type of animal, as you said. Animals, how they're treated, kind of defines a society. But uh, that's I started doing it, and, and as it went on, I just kept uh, thinking about each of the characters and refining them, and um, and that's how it kind of took off. Mm-hmm. I'm always interested to find out where an idea comes from and then how it uh, blossoms and grows. It's always so, it's always organic. It usually isn't a plan. It's just something that uh, comes from within. So maybe just give us a peek into the storyline so folks have an idea of what we're talking about. Sure. Uh, Parables is, uh, the setting is is a city called Parables. It's located in north central Minnesota. And it has every all the best things that Minnesota can offer. It's got pristine lakes. It's got lush forests uh, and trails and a lot of outdoor activities. And it's a getaway for people who live in the Twin Cities who just want to respite to try to recharge and so forth. And it's got everything going for it until a newspaper selects it as the best kept secret in Minnesota. And suddenly now (laughs) that becomes more of a curse than a blessing because the town begins to change. And it's, uh, I guess I could compare it on a larger scale to like Seattle and Portland and Boise where all of a sudden they they had all this uh, press about how great they were and their populations exploded and, the cost of living went up because all these people with a lot of money came in and bought up things. And, and along with that, the problems associated with urbanization followed too. So that's the setting. It's, it's this town of parables. They don't want to change. They don't want to hold on to all the values that made them the best kept secret. And in essence, they wish they were still the best kept secret because as the storyline goes on, Things are changing and they're not for the good. So the story begins and it, it centers around a cat named Tabby. Tabby is owned by a couple uh, named Ruth and Tony. And they are trying to have a baby. They're having difficulties. And Ruth is upset because Tony doesn't seem to be a willing partner. Uh, and she comes home one day. She's angry. She says, look, you want to have a baby or not? What's you have to, you know what we have to do. And he confesses that he's having an affair. And on top of that, his mistress is, is pregnant. And so Ruth is just first shocked and then angry. And then it goes downhill from there. She She's just totally enraged. And so in the divorce proceedings, are going underway. The last issue is Tabby. And before Tony can say anything, she blurts out that he's abusing the cat. 
and that uh, she's wants to, she because she knows uh, he knows how much the cat means to her, and she's also concerned that his mistress Olivia will harm the cat to get back at her. And so Tony is shocked. He says, I love the cat. And she says, yeah, like, you love me. And, and the judge, who's already exasperated by this whole divorce proceedings, uh, just has no sympathy for Tony. So he gives Ruth full custody of the cat, and Tony could just have supervised visits. Well, as we soon find out, the only reason Ruth wanted full custody was for revenge. She knew that the cat, how much the cat meant to Tony, was his mother's cat. And so she has this plot in her mind of what to do to not only uh, wreck Tony, but wreck their relationship. And it's as a, the first part of it where she abandons Tabby into a wooded area. And so he can be killed by a wild animal, so he can die. And then she's going to use that to call Tony and say, I don't know where Tabby's at and kind of start a wild goose chase. But as the story goes on, uh, she suddenly regrets what she did, but she can't find Tabby. And then what happens to Tabby, and that's a, that's a rough part of the book. People have read it. So I wish you would warn me about that, but, yeah. uh, and, and, but that's how the story kind of has to develop. And, I kind of, I kind of tell the readers stay with it. It is really rough, but whatever happens to the cat is going to impact and have a ripple effect on a lot of people, uh, people in his past, uh, people in his present, and eventually people in his future. And as the story develops, these people's lives start to get intertwined, and they they don't realize. Uh, some do, some don't, uh, that it's tied into Tabby. And what we, each of the people involved with Tabby or indirectly or directly becomes a type of parable, a story, uh, an individual you, you kind of learn about and initially you may like or not like, but then as you learn more, you, you've got, decisions kind of to make, like, well, do I still dislike this person? Are they worthy of forgiveness? Or uh, am I glad what happened to them, even though it was horrible? Did they get their just desserts? So it, it kind of, it's kind of like a parable. And uh, actually, I, I did a book club, and uh, one of the members uh, who they had read my book, uh, one of the members said, when I read the title, I thought it was going to be a religious and I said, well, it is, in a sense, because parables are stories that teach lessons or or are open-ended and lead you to put yourself in the place of the character. And uh, so, yeah, but it was so violent. I said, well, if if you want violence, read the Bible. There's quite a, quite a bit in there. But it was interesting to get feedback from people because I don't think no two readers will come away reading it with, the same uh, decisions about characters. I mean, even the beta readers I had as the storyline went along, they were like, are you trying to get me to forgive Ruth for what she did? Because I will, I will never 
especially if they were cat lovers, uh, forgive her. And and then others will say, well, there's a, a couple, I guess we could call villains in there, and some will say, I'm, I'm glad you that person got what they deserved, or, but it gave me a different angle when you brought in his mother or his child, or and you look at it from all these different angles that what happens to one person never just happens to them. There's a ripple effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there was times that I would come to uh, a part of the story, and you know, when you're writing fiction, you got you can you got a lot. You can decide which direction you want to take it. There's one part where it just shows you how quickly life can change in a moment, um, where the main character Lizzie has just had an incredible day with. Uh, she's it's her last day at the restaurant. She's graduating. Uh, nursing school and suddenly she's in a dangerous situation, a life-threatening situation. And it's telling what she's thinking at that point uh, that here the day started out and not only was it a great day, but she's thinking what happens if, if I don't make it. And she's thinking about all the people it's going to impact. And so even Tabby, I guess in the beginning, I'm uh, what's happening to him. I'm describing what, how he's uh, experiencing it through his mind, mm-hmm. and so it it uh, and that's kind of what I I guess not enjoyed, but what kind of kept drawing me back to to the novel was developing the characters and uh, their their own traits and how they interacted with other people. Right. And initially, I would think that being that you weren't not a fiction writer all your life, character writing and character development might have been um, a little bit difficult to do. But then when I think about your background, um, it seems like perhaps your previous work colored or impacted the writing of your characters and the book as a whole, just based on what you have seen through your experiences, um, especially the type of work you were doing. Oh, definitely. I, and when I, I had a book club that asked if they, if, they could have me as a guest. They had been getting together for 15 years and they asked for, how did, how did you come up with these characters or these situations? And I told them that I was drawing on, you know, events of my past or my own uh, daughters. Uh, my one daughter who was a nursing, uh, a nurse at, well, she was at Stanford actually. Now she's in Colorado. My wife was a nurse. So the lead character is a nurse. Uh, my sister-in-law, Carla, also, uh, I drew from information from her. It was kind of funny because her and my wife had an argument over what type of blood I should use for this emergency surgery. So <laughs> ended up flipping a coin. But I, yes, I did. When, when, uh, particularly when I was at IRS, I was in a drug group and you, you really see mm-hmm. some sad situations. Yep. And, and for instance, uh, one thing of as a pharmacist, we we got a referral from DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency. He was purchasing huge quantities of cough syrup with codeine, which could be used for a heroin substitute, and went out there and 
the, the whole inventory is, is basically gone of this cough syrup, which either meant half the south side of Chicago was coughing or something else was going on. <laughs> so as it turned out, I matched up the prescriptions, and, and there were no, it wasn't even close. And so when we confronted him, he said, well, I really didn't have a choice. This like, very ruthless gang kidnapped his 10-year-old son oh. and said, if you don't get this for us, we'll, we'll kill him. And, and they would have. And, and that, as I did more and more of those cases, um, you saw how I, I put myself in his place. What would I have done? Mm-hmm. You know, if, if they kidnapped my kid and put, put them in that situation or uh, how this other time we, we used to do jeopardy assessments where if someone was arrested, usually overnight by the police, we would uh, go down, especially if they were found with a large amount of drugs and money. And we try to do an interview and we're trying to basically, it's a race to put a lien or, or lock up the money uh, because either they haven't filed for their taxes or haven't filed a tax return or the money that was found on them is, is obviously a source from a, a trucks. Mm-hmm. But we have to check out if they do, inter- if they do answer, most of the time they didn't answer any questions in the interview, but if they do, we have to check everything out. So this one gentleman was arrested with, large quantity of drugs, and I think it was over $50,000 in, in money. And he said his mother uh, gave him the money. <laughs> so we had to go. We knew that was ridiculous, so we still had to go verify it. So I go out with a special agent, and we are in the worst part of Chicago. Mm. And I'm sticking real close to him because <laughs> he's got the gun, and all I got is a Texas Instrument calculator. <laughs> And and we we go and, and knock on the door and this elderly woman answers and we get show our identification and and she just said what did he do now mm-hmm. and we, we explained and actually special agent explained and you know what happened and then said he was found with over fifty thousand dollars and he said you gave it to him and she just broke down crying and. She said, I'm here trying to figure out how to pay my rent and to pay for my medications. And he's driving around with $50,000 saying it's mine. Mm. And she said, tell him we're through. I'm, I'm no longer his mother. He's no longer my son. I mean, he didn't just break, break her heart. He, he shattered yeah. it. Yeah. And, and you just saw all these things happening, uh, that just, you know, were, I, I did bring elements of that into the story. Sure. Um, and how no one's life just impacts themselves. It, it has a ripple effect on others. Mm-hmm. Oh, my. Thank you for giving us a little inside peek there. So what's next? Are you working on another book? I'm actually working on two. Two. Uh, one actually kind of relates to my lacrosse experience. Uh, I'm thinking of a title still, but it would be some long line of the creators came in. And uh, what a lot of people, well, maybe a lot of people do realize is that it's the oldest game in North America. It was uh, played by the Native Americans. They had different variations of it. 
but they believe the game itself was a gift from the creator, and it was used for a lot of different purposes. For instance, if there was an argument between tribes over land or uh, some other situation, whether that rather than going to war, they would play uh, lacrosse or the creator's game to settle it, the dispute and to find out what the creator wanted to, mm-hmm. how the creator wanted to settle the dispute rather than shedding blood. Other times it was used for preparing for warfare. So the, the story kind of centers around uh, a tribe that is, I don't want to use the term renegade, but I can't think of another term right now. They're, the government is trying to force them to uh, onto a reservation system, and they don't want to, and the chief is dying, and, and so this game of lacrosse is being played to determine who will be his successor. And in the meantime, the, the tribe also... Uh, finds themselves in uh, near a group of uh, hired by the government to eradicate the buffalo, which the the storyline kind of goes from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one, and then the other. <laughs> um, the title I don't have the title yet, but it's talking about a high school experience where back when I went to high school, uh, the boys had to swim naked and we never found out why I, I've done research. There's been an explanation, but this was a co-ed school. Mm-hmm. And so during our swim class, we had to swim naked, but the girls did not. Right. And we thought, what, you know, why is that? And, it, and so I'm kind of looking forward to that because I got a reunion coming up and a, a kind of interview. I want to get some testimonials. <laughs> And it's kind of funny and and weird at the same time about that whole experience. I just read um, on my high school Facebook group, it might have been a few years before I was in high school, they were talking about the same thing. So I don't think it was unique to where you were. Apparently, that was a thing. Right. And and it'll come up periodically on uh, public radio or a newspaper article. And it, it just the, wow. the initial uh, explanation was that it was for the filtration system of the pools back in the early thirties oh, or twenties, and um, but what? but they said, but we have to have girls uh, wear something because otherwise that would be immodest. So oh, my <laughs> it, was, no. <laughs> it was it was just. Just the whole history of it is kind of strange. Oh my! Well, I look forward to figuring that out by reading your book. So keep keep us posted on that. Let's go back to lacrosse for a second. How did you become involved with lacrosse, women's lacrosse? Yes, yeah, so my my daughter. Um, this was back in Minnesota. Her and her friends uh, organized the first lacrosse team for their high school, Osseo. And all those parents would just be watching. We didn't have a clue what was going on. So I tried reading a book, which confused me even more. So when I went to, uh, I used to drive her, her and her teammates to this winter league in Blaine. And I finally asked one of the, well, actually, she was the one who organized the whole winter league. I said, can I ask you a question? And it was about this foul called shooting space because I heard my daughter and her friends talking about it in the car that they kept getting called for it. 
but they were too afraid to ask for an explanation. So this woman just, and her husband gave me a full detailed explanation. And then afterwards she said, well, what team are you coaching? And I laughed. I said, I'm not a coach. I'm just a curious parent. And she said, oh, would you like to be an official? <laughs> and I said, no, <laughs> not a chance. And she just kept talking to me. And, and I said, listen, I've never even called numbers in a bingo game. <laughs> and and the more objections I'm giving, like, I don't even know how to spell lacrosse. The more reasons she was telling me, like, it's brand new here in Minnesota. And we're learning together. The coaches are learning. The players are learning. The officials are learning. But I, I still said, I'm sorry, that's just not on my wish list. And on the drive home, I told my daughter, expecting her and her friends to just bust out laughing. laughing. But instead, they were saying, you really should think about it, Mr. Nicholson. There, there's some games, there's only one official. They're supposed to be two. And just how bad the shortage was. So I didn't do it. I, I, I still decided, no, that's not for me. But it started bothering me, and it was kind of that uh, thing where you better to have tried and failed than never to have tried at all. Yes. Kind of was bugging me. So I went back. It was after my daughter graduated, and I said, do you still need officials? And they said, now more than ever, it's, it's getting worse. I said, all right, I'll try. I'll try it, but no guarantees. And that's all she had asked me to do. Mm-hmm. Could you just try it? Try. And suddenly I found myself out on the field shadowing another official. And I thought, wow, this is really cool. <laughs> I've, I've never watched the game actually being in the game on the field with the players. And uh did two shadowings or followings of, of experienced lacrosse officials. And next thing I knew, I'm given a high school game and I'm like, okay, this can't be right. I'm supposed to start with little kids and work my way up, but that's how short things were. And 18 years later, I'm, I'm a college rated official and, uh, to be determined how much longer, but, uh, it's, it's been a great experience. Oh my. Oh, just think what you would have missed out on had you didn't have that encouragement from your daughter and her, her friends. That's so fun. And I know that you have a favorite memory. So maybe share that with us. Yeah, I have, I have a lot. I mean, cause after doing, you know, doing officiating in three different states now and having done high school state tournaments and other tournaments, and by the I have good and bad memories. <laughs> the behavior of some of the fans and uh, coaches sure. also can be trying at times. But I guess a memory I had. Um, I was doing a we were doing a first round uh, playoff uh, game in Florida, and my partners. Uh, one was Jessica; she was ahead of our association. The other was. Uh, Kelly, and she was actually a new lacrosse official, but she was also a hockey official. And so we decided, hey, let's take a picture for the game. And the picture came out kind of cool because we we had the sun behind us with a cloud and the, and the rays of the sun kind of, it was centered perfectly. It was just an accidental uh, masterpiece, I guess I would call it. But then I was thinking, when I was looking at it, um, 
Now, Jessica was a national uh, was a national rated official who was in the World Cup, which was you you kind of would call it, I guess similar to the Olympics of women's lacrosse. And Kelly was uh, as a a hockey official was in the Olympics, was an Olympic hockey official. I thought, how did I end up here? <laughs> I thought, wow, I've really come come far from telling uh, Jan was her name, no, to now being, uh, taking a picture, which I guess if Sesame Street had one of these refs, this doesn't belong, it would have been too easy. <laughs> um, and I, I just kind of reflected how far I'd come on a sport I knew nothing about. And I guess that kind of summarized all the other good memories uh, that I had with the sport. It's also very inspiring for everyone listening to think of the opportunities you might miss if you don't take a chance and do something a bit out of your comfort zone. Um, That was definitely out of my comfort zone. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of the other officials that came into the sport had already officiated, uh, for instance, I mentioned hockey or soccer, basketball. They had, they had come from officiating other sports, and, that, and that's a science in and of itself right. of being an official. And right. I was, I believe, in Minnesota. Everybody asked me, what other sport are you officiating? And I said, none. And I think I felt like I was the only one who <laughs> had never officiated another sport. But, yes, and, and at least try. Yes. You'll find out. And But part of the problem is it's it's becoming more and more difficult for us to hold on to young officials because of the bad behavior of, of coaches mm-hmm. who uh, they verbally abuse new officials or they don't realize that we're trying to train and to bring up new officials to better the officiating. And when we have to keep training new officials because we keep losing them, they're actually uh, shooting themselves in the foot. And it's, it's not, I, I want to make sure it's, it's not all the coaches. Most of the coaches are, are professional, but it doesn't take many to, to drive a young official out and say, I don't need this. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's one of the things it's, it is good to try, but as, as a seasoned official, if when I get, New officials, I always have to be in protect mode to make sure nothing happens to them. Um, I've had to issue more misconduct cards. I had to issue a misconduct card a couple of weeks ago to a youth official who was just screaming and yelling. And um, I, I gave him the card. I said, you have to pull a player off. And he's just staring at me. And afterwards, five people come up to me thanking me because he was ruining this. Yeah. Halloween tournament where it was costume wasn't even supposed to be, it was supposed to be fun. And he was just a type A personality and couldn't keep it under control. And uh, I think that's a dark side of not just lacrosse, but other sports that there, there's more and more of a shortage of officials and, and us seasoned officials aren't getting any younger. So the, the behavior has to change because we're not going to be able to attract mm-hmm. uh, young officials to stay in the game. And this is not the first time I've heard that from folks who I've uh, interviewed before. And it's not just lacrosse. It's across all sports. And it's just so shocking to me that at this 
age and stage that we still have bullies. And at some point it should, should just be zero tolerance. I mean, you do that once and you're gone. It's, it's, it shouldn't even be accepted. Yeah. Yeah, And, and, um, and again, it's, it's, uh, it's not, there's no simple answers because uh, I mean, I, I know when I was, uh, roughing with two other officials down in Florida, uh, Jim and Bill, we were, we knew that once we got up to a certain level, whichever team lost, there would be fans and coaches waiting to see where we were exiting or oh. give us a couple of verbal shouts of abuse before we left. And uh, it's just kind of the, I guess, win at all costs mentality. I guess some of it is parents pay a lot of money for their kids to go to clinics and yeah. uh, all these training off season in hopes of their uh, daughters or sons or whatever to get accepted into Division One schools, and it, it's a combination of things. Um, but I'm, I'm seeing right now where you know it used to be verbal abuse, and in some cases now it's turned into verbal assault. Where uh, there's this, it's, it's, there's no excuse for it, but no. and they they're trying to figure out how do we deal with this. They have to. I, I did a, this year 104 games. I didn't want to do 104 uh-huh. games, but we're You're short. shortages uh-huh. are that there's just not enough officials anymore. And, and again, I'm not getting any younger, yeah. but uh, you're right. Things have to change. For sure. Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you for doing that. Think of all the the youth that you are helping and, and setting a standard for um, and inspiring. So somebody's got to step up to the plate, basically. Thank you. So many more things I wanted to check in with you about. So let me just ask you, is there anything we missed as we begin to wrap up? Anything we missed that you wanted to highlight? Uh, Yes. I I don't know if this would be good or not, but uh, I found that that when a couple book clubs contact me and said, hey, we, we picked your book, can we talk with you? That was so fun because uh, not just the questions and, and that they had, but I could get feedback from them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, for instance, I, I put in an epilogue in the book and I asked the one group, uh, I could have ended the story where it ended, but uh, I, I felt the epilogue kind of tied up a couple loose ends. What did you think? And and the one member, Karen, I remember said, if you didn't put that epilogue in there, I would have felt robbed. Well. Like I was robbed. And so what I, I guess what I'm saying is if writers out in Radio Land, if, if you can get some book clubs to adopt your book, uh, it's a big opportunity mm-hmm. to get feedback. And it's fun for them because then they get kind of behind the scenes information on your characters, your book cover. And it, it's just a... It's just a great opportunity if you can do it. I'm trying to figure out how I can expand on that. And and um, I guess the other kind of blessing with the book was as it kind of got passed along or to other people, I reconnected with people some I hadn't heard from in decades. Mm-hmm. And just who someone said, so-and-so, you know, John wrote a book. And what? And, <laughs> and, you know, kind of the curiosity factor. And, wow, this is really good. And and. It was just fun reconnecting with people. So it, that that part of it was fun. Yep. Well, just keep putting it out there. And, you know, maybe book club to book club, they'll be suggesting to fellow, fellow readers and fellow book clubs. And uh, word of mouth will probably help 
greatly. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there is a book club network. That would be fun to tap into. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't know about that either, but that would be something to look at. Excellent. Different libraries. I I am in a couple libraries. Oh, good. Um, (laughs) The problem there is every time you approach a library, they want you to get a library card. So (laughs) uh, I guess I'll have to get an index file. Yeah. Library cards. (laughs) I can have a collection. Put it up on your wall. (laughs) Oh, John, you're awesome. All righty. Well, if you would then share any and all contact information where folks can find out more about you, because there's so much more to know. All right. Well, I, my daughter Chrissy developed an excellent website, and it's johnnicholsonauthor.com. Uh, no spaces or anything. John Nicholson, author, Nicholson, N-I-C-H-O-L-S-O-N, like the movie star. And on there, there's, uh, I think that's the easiest place to go. If you'd like to purchase a book, there's a link that just says uh, buy the book and you hit that and it goes to a location on Amazon where you can purchase it. Right. It also has some more, uh, background information and, uh, also reviews that I've received and the awards and uh, I just I'm proud of Chrissy she did a great job and I'm always relying on her to kind of update it but I see the the uh, tuition money we pay for her to get her marketing (laughs) degree has paid off immensely (laughs) I love that it is a nice website so give her my compliments to John Nicholson author The book is titled Parables of Chance. Then we will look forward to your next two books about women's lacrosse and naked swimming. So we've got lots to look forward to. That sounds like like a a reason to be arrested. I don't know. I know. know. We're going to keep our eye on you and your... uh, Two separate books. And your Texas instrument uh, calculator. (laughs) That made me laugh. Thank you so much for today. I was so looking forward to having this time with you. And please share your new books with us when they come along. So hopefully we can do this again. I will. And thank you, Pat. Thank you. It was a, it was a pleasure being here. And again, I, I was honored to receive your award. And I can't thank you enough and having this opportunity today also. Well, thank you. Keep writing, John. Thank you, Pat. <laughs>